Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today, Jason Sirocco. Hi, Jason. Hello, Nabil. Jason is the CTO PKI for Sectigo. He has decades of experience researching, innovating, educating markets, developing intellectual property, and contributing to national-level guidance and consortium standards. He works closely with enterprise companies daily to synthesize, manage public key infrastructure and security solutions. So Jason, why don't we get started? Tell us how you got to where you are today. You know, it's interesting. I work with a lot of people who come in from uh, engineering backgrounds. I work with a lot of people who come from uh, very strict business backgrounds, and I'm, I'm kind of the black duck. I come in from an academic background a little bit different. When I was much, much younger, I had thought I was uh, going to go into a scientific realm. I was actually a, a climate modeler way, way back in the day, paleoclimate to be exact. And what's kind of interesting is the bit of a journey then onto cybersecurity and very specifically, basically the management of private keys, public keys, and good old PKI, which is a big topic for me and has been now for a little over you know, 21 years of my life. So it, it's uh, working with people who come from those those backgrounds, you know, in computer science, people who come from backgrounds, uh, various backgrounds in business. Uh, my take is a little bit different. I bring a lot of rigor and a lot of research capability into, into the field. And that's why I kind of ended up where I am now. It's, it's just, it kind of felt like a natural progression. It never really felt as disjointed as it does on paper. So are there any maybe key challenges that you faced that you can share with us for the fact that you came from the academic background, working with others who maybe did not come from an academic background? What were some challenges you faced early on and, and how did you overcome them? Sure. I don't think that, you know, really, I, I was lucky. I would have had a lot more challenges if I wouldn't have been able to flex my communication muscles very early on. I, th- I think what helped me and what I think a lot of engineers still need to work on is because there's a, there's a real similarity to what, to what I was doing in academia and what, and what engineers, what their background typically is. One of the things that we're, we're typically good at is getting something done or we're very good at researching alone. But the real skill set that helps me to overlap the people I work with is communication. Uh, the ability to to write it out, the ability to speak it, the ability to re- to do presentations, the ability to get up on stage and talk about this stuff, and make the incredibly complicated things that we do on a daily basis a lot simpler. Don't always succeed, but I try my best. And I, I would say that that's probably one of the biggest challenges early on was the fact that I did work with folks who they had not been up on stage, they had not written uh, what what back in the day, you know. There was various other ways to communicate. Now we have blogs and podcasts. We didn't have that way back. But but there was a lot of people who were looking at what I was trying to do and scratching their heads, wondering, you know, what's going on here? And I think what that led day in the bill is not just the ability to tell a story. That's that's great. You know, doing a podcast like this, this is great. I think 
though what was really important was that ability to talk to customers, the ability to really understand what they need, and the ability then to explain to people who have a need for these kinds of technologies, here's what's available, here's what the art of the possible is. Uh, it was, it's, it's been a long journey, but I, you know, I, I really like the place that I'm at right now. I feel very similar, you know, I have similar sentiment as you do with and be, the ability to need uh, to be able to communicate effectively. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think our formal education system, especially in academia, could do a better job, especially with the more technical degrees, to incorporate more communication um, skills into those programs? Or even, you know, I don't like calling things book smarts and street smarts. I like calling them more like real skills that people need in order to effectively understand a problem or distill a problem down and communicate it effectively to others. Do you think there's still an opportunity for us to improve that in the academic space? Or are there other techniques you've adopted that you think are more effective? I honestly think it's been a, it's been a while since I've lived in that world, but I don't think there's been a lot of change. Uh, the formality of the education is absolutely necessary. I was really glad to see after I had left there be more uh, capability, opportunities for people to enter the real world, as you say, but quite often it's getting your hands very dirty and, and not doing that communication. I was very lucky in that I was exposed to having to take work that I was doing and then communicate that at conferences. And that means not, not just, you know, thesis defenses and all those formal things that people in academia do, but also that ability to package up your complicated ideas, put them into consumable forms. You know, back in the day, we did have conferences, but they weren't as common as now. We did have other forms of communication, but it was, you know, in terms of very, very academic peer to academic peer communication, typically in journal articles and, and the types of things that you were, would just obsess over. Absolutely right now, there's more chance than ever for people to communicate in less formal ways and not so peer to peer, but to a wider audience and take the interesting things that you're doing as an academic, even if they are extremely niche and make them interesting to a wider audience. I think part of the problem is even the, the skill set of the people doing the teaching in university uh, it needs to, that, that blend needs to change in order for that culture to change to communicate outbound. That whole idea of the, the ivory tower, that echo chamber, unfortunately, I think that's still the way it is. And I, th I think there needs to be a big stru whole structural change to be able to inflict a, a wider change to get people to communicate. So let's let's talk a little bit about some of the topics we I really want to cover with you, uh, given your experience in the in the identity space. You know, want to understand better from your perspective what you're seeing out there in the world of digital identity. You know, can you share with us a little bit about the state of authentication today? And also maybe we can dig a little deeper into some of the strengths and weaknesses of two-factor authentication, which it, which really needs to become the bare minimum standard, I believe, when it comes to authentication. For sure, Nabil. This is one of my biggest areas, topics areas that, I, that I've been working on for you know, decades plus. I think, unfortunately, we're still in a very bad state. I mean, you and I and this whole audience probably still reads on a weekly to almost daily basis about breaches, various forms of social engineering. These things just don't go away. 
because of the fact that we continue to make, continue to live with a legacy of shared secrets, we continue to live with a legacy of weaker forms of MFA. It's really amazing to me that still to this day, you know, how many years later we've been doing this, I'm still having to explain to people the difference between, uh, you know, what is a symmetric secret and an asymmetric secret. And to make that more simple, a shared secret, meaning symmetric secret. So what am I talking about? This is any time where, let's say, Nabil, you and I wanted to do business and we could agree that I could show up at your door tomorrow. And if I knock three times, you'll pretty much know it's me. Well, somebody could have overheard us having that conversation to agree to knock three times. The exact same thing with a username and password. That's a shared symmetric secret. In other words, that secret had to be provisioned out to me. That secret had to be keyed into memory on my computer that, that, that could be uh, basically a compromised endpoint. It might have been sent in the clear by mistake due to a problem in the protocol and on and on and on. You know, various forms of man-in-the-middle attack. Shared secrets by their necessity have by their definition, have all kinds of problems. The only reason why you'd want to use them is in an extremely network resource poor scenario. You you never want to use them for you know human authentication anymore. So of course we came up with the idea of multi-factor authentication. And I wrote an article probably over 10 years ago saying not all multi-factor authentication is created equal. And yet still to this day, you, you see Twitter storms, people arguing about Hey, you know, I think SMS is good enough, even though NIST deprecated it. And yet you look at the real world and that's not a high enough bar for the bad guy to get over. Once people start to see what, what kinds of authentication technologies have now existed in, in modern times, I know it's a, it's a marketing buzz term, passwordless, and certainly just about every vendor has their own definition of what that really means, you know, based on whatever they're selling to the market. But what it really should mean is the usage of an asymmetric secret, meaning that the private part of the secret, what we would call a private key in the PKI world, that's what's used to do the authentication. And it never leaves a secure place, never leaves your Windows 10 or 11 TPM, never leaves your IoT device secure element never leaves your mobile device secure enclave. And yet that's the thing that's doing the authentication in a secure way that improves the user experience, doesn't require this one, two, three steps of authentication. The ability for a, a bad guy to, to guess at that asymmetric secret, the ability for the bad guy to steal it because of the fact that it's in a secure element is so much harder. And yet that story is so hard to tell. Very frustrating for me to go around the world and still see security architectures using legacy authentication. I absolutely have sympathy for folks who have no choice with ancient legacy systems that cannot be changed. But then you need other controls to go with it. But when you're architecting net new, especially cloud native systems, goodness to build, there, there's, the change has, has come. And the, the, the ability for technologies even to deal with the scale of proliferation of asymmetric style secrets, PKI certificates as an example, is so much better than it used to be. Uh, I don't think the world's really caught up to it yet. And it's, it's very unfortunate because I'm, I am so tired of you know, reading those articles about breaches and hearing the fantastic time that the bad guys are having at everybody's expense. Yeah, no, that's that's a great way of putting this. And, you know, as you were going over um, your thoughts here, I just, um, you know, kind of remembered that it's amazing 
especially when it comes to SMS for that second factor, right? How how people often don't realize that the SMS protocol was A, never built to be secure, and B, it was never built to be used in the way it is used more popularly today, which is to send messages and multimedia across in an unencrypted fashion. So not only do we have the problem that we're, you know, people are still trying to use a protocol that is inherently insecure by design, and also doesn't have any quality of service guarantees, but also you know, easily spoofable, easily you know, intercepted, and, and so on. So it's, uh, it's still funny to me that people believe that that's the, the bare minimum or that's okay. Uh, but you, know, you are right. A lot of organizations struggle because they're kind of you know, restricted to what they can and cannot implement and, and get their users to adopt in, in, a, short, in a short order. So I, I hope to see more changes in this in the future, obviously, but, but we'll see where it goes. Um, it's, it's quite funny to me when I hear some of these stories as well. Story, actually, just, just because it's so interesting, the latest story I was reading about that was that the fact that it cost $16 to sign up for an SMS redirection, which essentially was a form of social engineering. And it was not difficult after you paid your $16 to convince the telco company to redirect the SMS messages to wherever you wanted them to. And so this wasn't just a, a proof of concept hack. This was commercially available SMS redirection. And I, I don't know if you've tried it, Nabil, if you've ever coded it yourself, but if you've ever coded on Android, a little bit of Java, you know, I, I, I messed with it myself. It took, without error handling code, obviously, it took about three lines of code to be able to create SMS redirection malware. I, I love it when they say, oh, this is extremely sophisticated malware. It's three lines of code, you know, Bill, like seriously, it's, yeah. I, yeah, again, we could go on and on. We could have several podcasts just on the weaknesses of SMS. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm very familiar. I, I used to, you know, in a, in a previous life, I used to be a product manager at BlackBerry and I helped implement some of the newer versions of push technology, which obviously leverages a binary SMS messages and so on. So very familiar with, with how that works. And, and yeah, it's, it's a lot easier than people think. You know, let's, let's also talk a little bit more about this uh, friend of ours, which you hinted towards, which is the username and password and the concept of passwordless and so on, right? Um, you know, can we talk a little bit about the future of username and password, you know, I believe it's 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 treated us well for for the time being, but it's time to evolve to something better. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about some of the challenges of maybe decentralized uh, identity and and why we're still seeing username and password being used, and we haven't seen other forms of authentication um, get more prevalence. For sure, I think part of what the issue is, we have we still live in a world where authentication quite often, especially in an enterprise environment, is happening at the network level. In other words, I think even though we have moved on quite often from Microsoft stack technology-based world, which is where I kind of grew up in my enterprise time, you're typically logged into Active Directory. And the default you know, the typical legacy setup is username and password. Microsoft obviously now has all kinds of ability for you to to move away from that and do other interesting things going full passwordless in fact now is entirely possible but because of that log into active directory and then essentially your single sign-on to your other parts of your network is then offered by that that's part of the legacy 
So whenever you hear that buzz term zero trust, one of the principles of zero trust is don't do your authentication at the network level, do it at the application level. So where are we seeing that? We're seeing that now in more of the cloud native world. And thankfully, people have looked at other technologies other than Active Directory. There's obviously a lot of IDPs out there, identity providers, who now have all kinds of authentication technologies that are, you know, kind of one step beyond that shared secret username password. They've these guys are specialists typically in some form of MFA. So that's good. It's a good step. Again, if we go and take a look at what's going on then in the consumer world, rather than just enterprise, where we're at right now is, of course, a legacy of people are used to just using a password. That's what everybody's social media site originally probably provisioned them with. MFA was offered only later. And still to this day, you have a lot of people who don't have their MFA turned on. It's, it's not configured automatically. It's something that you have to opt into, and I'm shocked at how many people just don't. In fact, I was just reading an article very recently about some sort of, you know, ISIS terrorism stuff going on, activity takeover about a Facebook accounts in Australia, who was getting attacked, and the journalist didn't cover this very, very well, but it was people who didn't have their, their MFA turned on. I think that the, the big opportunity to make the push into asymmetric secrets, something new, something different, something that where, you know, it, it might be a biometric that is your the equivalent of your username. And then the password sequence, be the equivalent of the password is the asymmetric, you know, basically the certificate signing a challenge document by the server, if you will. You know, that's that's the real sequence of an asymmetric secret that is, is common in the enterprise. That's happening today. I think what you're also seeing in the enterprise is the usage of, you're still seeing the usage of, of hardware keys, YubiKeys being quite common. Uh, with problem, of course, being the fact that these things aren't fully managed. These are crypto keys, not necessarily certificates that have a expiry dates. They have to be handled with a policy engine, et cetera. So there's overhead. I, I think I think there's a perception, the bill, to answer your question very directly, I think there's a perception that to get past that legacy of username and password plus some form of MFA, it either doesn't exist, which is false, or the barrier to entry is difficult or risky to set up. I think what has changed that mindset, thankfully for a lot of enterprises who have looked into what's modern, what's next, is unfortunately the pandemic right so as of february march 2020 you now had a a rush towards passwordless technologies using asymmetric secrets because of the need to quickly provision entire enterprises who were going to work from home and thankfully that that was the to me the the big barrier that needed to be crossed is just look into it just look into what technology is now available to you and, and don't feel so warm and fuzzy with your elderly legacy technologies. Thankfully, I think enough people have now looked into it that there's no looking back. And passwordless technologies of various kinds that really are not using username and password are going to be a trend that moves forward now as we as we go on. It is obviously not going to be overnight in the bill, but I think I think the big barrier has been broken. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And I don't know if you're a, a late night comedy guy, but I, I'm an avid follower of the late night comedians. And there's an actual skit done by Jimmy Fallon 
where he tries to he tries out the new password list, and I'm using air quotes here, a feature of Microsoft to try and log into his Microsoft account. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I recommend you do because it's quite funny um, to see how quickly uh, something like this falls apart if you're not very tech savvy or if you don't have your accounts um, set up in the correct way to begin with. Um, and and the comedy there is very relatable and and I, I quite enjoyed it. And I think if, if you haven't seen it, I think you might enjoy it too. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I, uh, I, I did hear about it and I'm not surprised. I think that there's, I can tell you that I think cybersecurity is a very ripe area for comedy. I think all the comedians need to be looking at it, <laughs> unfortunately. They actually do a very good job of distilling what we talked about earlier, right? Distilling technical and, and complex topics and, and simplifying them for, for everyday people. And, and that's, I think, what, where the value comes from when they talk about cybersecurity or even technical topics on, on their shows. It's so easy to run into chicken and egg problems, right? Which is really where the comedy comes from. I, I think that this, this is the onus put on to the cybersecurity vendors that you know we remember we were talking earlier exactly what you're just saying sometimes it's engineers who really think well this is the way people are going to use it and they won't they will never deviate from this jimmy fallon tells us otherwise right i think i think the comic relief is is really part of why there still is some some resistance to it because there's going to be some perception that typically cybersecurity people think about it like brakes on a car you're stopping me from doing something and unfortunately, the, the biggest thing that needed, needs to be communicated out is looking at cybersecurity more as an enabler than a set of brakes. And I think once, once we start breaking that, once we start getting software that's less fragile, I think we're there now. I think, I think we're there now. I think people just need to discover it. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about... Best practices around managing your digital certificates. Um, you know, are there certain best practices you typically recommend security leaders to adopt uh, when they're thinking of this problem? Yeah, there's. Uh, if we keep it down to three, which I think we, we have to do in in this in the context of this podcast, I'll just like any form of cybersecurity hygiene. I think you got to take inventory. In other words, we're probably not just talking about authentication certificates we're probably also talking about could be anything from your kubernetes cluster ca that's that's you know provisioning dls certificates into your containers it could be ssl certificates on your web servers you know which is quite a common use case obviously on and on and on i think taking inventory and doing a proper discovery of all the certificates you have in order to have a single pane of glass for all of them have that visibility Unless you have that, every other step is, well, maybe it's important, but I think the, the most important place to start is with discovery. So number two, once you have that, that visibility, start to take a look at things such as your certificate profiles. I'm concentrating here quite a lot on your DevOps certificates, your IoT certificates, which who knows? Who knows how those certificate profiles were set up? Was it set up by somebody who actually understands PKI? Is your bit length long enough? Is it a proper non-deprecated cryptographic algorithm? These are all questions that need to be asked, typically by somebody who really knows what they're looking at. But once you have visibility to your CAs and your certificates, take a look at those certificate profiles. And number three, I really think you have to look towards the future. In other words, can you adopt to new use cases? In other words, for those of you who 
you know, kind of cut your teeth on PKI with a, a Microsoft CA, you know the pain of having to be asked, hey, can I use this to be able to authenticate my, you know, BYOD devices? Can I use this for anything outside of the Microsoft stack? Well, the answer is no. So what is your ability to adopt to new use cases? And, and I'm going to end with this one, Bill, which is kind of near and dear to my heart, but we're probably not going to be dealing with, with the current cryptographic algorithms that we use today. ECC, RSA, I mean, they're, they're in all of our TLS certificates right now. And the thing we got to ask ourselves is, you know, are you ready for quantum resistance? In other words, quantum computers will become a real thing at some point. Add that to Shor's algorithm, and all of a sudden, the current cryptographic algorithms might be in a little bit of trouble. And so therefore, are you getting your hands dirty today and, and learning what hybrid quantum resistance certificates look like? Have you looked at the NIST research on that? I, I think that's just an area that I would recommend that when, when people are looking at vendors for these kinds of technologies, that, that's the chat. one of the challenges you should give them and say, where are you at with that? How are you going to help me to bridge into that future? No, very valid point. It's something that I've also, I find myself bringing this point up more recently, more frequently than I than I expected, where people don't think about the fact that quantum computing is going to really change the landscape of crypto. And um, yeah, a lot of people haven't even given it much thought. And I think um, we really need to be thinking about it very seriously. I think so. I think so. It, what, what's really good is the fact that people jumped on it about as quickly as they could have. I think NIST is well along, probably 2024, we're, we're going to get the, the, the short list cut down to the decisions of what quantum resistant algorithms we're going to be looking at, both from a document signing as well as from, a, from an encryption standpoint. But then the question is, okay, how does the rubber hit the road? There are kits now that, that are offered to be able to get your hands dirty with that, even without final list of quantum resistance algorithms being decided upon time to learn how that's going to work for your SSL use case, for your private trust use cases, authentication, etc. The vendor community is moving lockstep with the academic community on that. And uh, it's a good thing. It needed to be done. Uh, I would have hated to enter that quantum apocalypse not being prepared. For sure. So I want to kind of shift a little bit to uh, some other concepts that I know you're very interested in, in particular around machine learning. Um, you know, in a lot of conversations, uh, it's come up that, you know, things like machine learning and AI probably need to play a much more direct role in authentication, authorization, or even detecting threats or, you know, potential malicious application behavior or system behavior. What are your thoughts on, on where you see machine learning and AI playing a role, let's say, in the next five years or so? And do you foresee them being able to potentially get us to a world where we don't need to worry about username and passwords anymore? For sure. I, I honestly think that a good problem set where neural networks work well, and I, I dealt with these things back in my academic days in the you know late 90s. So I you know, to me, these things aren't as new as they are to some people. And, and I have a maybe a, a better sense for what they're good for as a tool and what they're not good for. One of the things I don't think they're great for yet is just as a, a an overall monitoring tool. I think that bad guys have really done a good job at looking so legitimate on the network, the way that credentialing works right now, weak credentialing, that 
unfortunately, any form of monitoring is, I think the bit, one of the big fallacies that people can make, especially security architects, is to think that you can analyze your way out of the problem and to merely put a pattern matching system in place and say, well, if I see an anomaly, I'm going to catch it. Well, maybe you will, but probably what you're going to be catching is the sloppier version of the attack not the really targeted stuff or maybe any of the stuff, unfortunately, if they're coming in with a legitimate credential. But here's the bright light. I think I think part of what is being used right now that I do like is a convolutional neural network. You know, I'll go ahead and name what it is. People can go look it up. But that ability to turn binary files into essentially what's similar to an image. Like if you've ever seen a neural network look at images and be able to be trained to say, Hey, that's a that's a dog, that's a cat. And not just that, but that picture is of a human female around 32 years old. And you'll be amazed at how incredibly accurate those convolutional neural networks are. And so if you take that exact same convolutional neural network and then you train it to look at, all right, whenever you see this pattern within the binary, it's probably doing something malicious. It's similar to what real pros are doing real experts, you know, human beings. I was trained to do this years ago to be able to take malicious, known malicious binaries or even to take things such as, uh, you know, a Windows update or an update to any software, break it down into its hex and then look for, hey, what is this thing doing? And some patterns that you will see are going to be malicious because it's just, it's just very rarely done in a legitimate world. We can get into what that is, but these neural networks are terrific, far, far faster than I could be with my own eyes looking for these kinds of patterns because it breaks it down, not just into a text, but into almost a form of an image and looks for the exact pattern within other patterns. So even if it's hidden, even if it's spread, it's able to find these things. And so, Nabil, I, I guess the, to summarize what I'm trying to think here and what I'm saying, it's not... It's not an all-purpose tool. It, it needs to be used very purposefully, and it needs to be used in areas where it's best. I think in the future that may change, but for right now, and maybe in the next you know four or five years, that's that's the world we're living in, where using it as a extremely powerful pattern finder within binaries payloads, that seems to be where its greatest strength is at the moment. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe there's people doing skunk work stuff that could blow my mind, but I personally haven't seen anything different than what I just said right now. You know, when it comes to these type of systems, one area where I think we've made a lot of progress um, using machine learning to determine malicious activity is in the credit card fraud detection space. It's amazing, you know, how quickly... Um, a lot of these credit card companies now are able to detect fraudulent activity on your cards and how quickly they can notify you and, and let you know when they see something suspicious. It certainly has improved, hasn't it? I think, uh, I think in the past, yeah, there was yeah. so many false positives. It would just drive me nuts. But now it's, it's a lot better than it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've come a long way there. And if, if that's an indicator uh, of what's to come in the future, I think we're going to get to a much better place in the next few years, hopefully in the next four to five years or so. I agree. 
Well, Jason, um, one thing we like to talk about on this podcast is not just cybersecurity and technical stuff, but also non-technical things that people like to do outside of the workplace. Uh, so can you share with us when you're not thinking about authentication and cyber, what are other things that you enjoy doing outside of work? Sure. So I, I live a nine-hour drive north of Toronto. Uh, in So I live in the, basically northern Canada. And my world probably looks very different than most people's world right now. Very cold, very snowy. But uh, when I'm not buried in snow, uh, you wouldn't believe what I just did, Nabil. I, I bought a tractor and a little plot of land. And uh, I don't think I'll become a farmer, but I am going to develop that land a little bit to uh, to basically do some things that I, I've been wanting to do since I was young, which is uh, get a bunch of friends together and, and have... Uh, if not a camping sort of scenario, it's it's more of a glamping uh, world that 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 I'm going to be setting up. People with their trailers, people being able to come over and uh, set up a big bonfire and, and very comfortably spend the weekend. I, I so that's uh, that's my big project at the moment. Interesting, you say that. I've never been camping, or nothing that I can officially say is camping, but I have been glamping where there was a proper shower and a full bathroom <laughs> and, and access to facilities, you know. But I did go outdoors to sleep at night, but um, it was definitely quite enjoyable. Um, so, what what encouraged you to to take on this endeavor? I think it was just looking towards the future. I, I it's. It's something that uh, it, being outdoors is, is really where my heart is most of the time. In fact, going all the way back to my academic days, it was to study these kinds of natural environments. It was because I, you know, it's really truly where my heart usually is. It's thinking about that out, outdoor and natural environment and uh, the ability to get back out to it more on more of a full-time basis. It really does appeal to me. And that's, that's what kind of pulls me out there. So I know that you love the outdoors, and I believe you're also uh, really into photography. Is your photography heavily focused on landscapes and, and nature, or is it something else? Interesting you say that. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I would say that probably three quarters of the snaps I take are, are probably of something in the natural environment. Absolutely. A lot of macro photography, getting down into the, you know, looking at everything from bees to spiders to you name it. But you know, Nabil, I tell you, probably the biggest joy I've had recently is the discovery of really, really good flash photography techniques, which I think a lot of people have discovered recently, which has then taken me into portraits. And I never thought I would get into it as much as I am now, but portraiture with with strobes is is a new passion for me. And that's that's something that I think in photography, the technical nature of it was something that really appealed and and what has amazed me is now over a few years of doing a lot of what I you know what I thought were just good portraits or or fun portraits to do have now become very important because we've lost a number of people in my family we've lost a number of people that I know of that are friends who I've taken portraits of and now those those portraits I took of them now take on a completely different uh, importance and significance for not just me but for the people. Who, who were closest to those folks, and uh, I tell you, it's um, it was a it was an aspect of photography that I had never suspected. So it kind of caught me by surprise, and still to this day, I think that it's one of the more important things that I've that I've done in terms of photography. So when it comes to portrait photography, I know for a fact that it's very hard to truly capture people 
in a way that looks very natural, especially when you're doing portraits, uh, because people tend to get very awkward or shy when the lens is pointed directly at their face, capturing all the expressions. Are there certain techniques you use to get more natural of a reaction um, out of people uh, when you're taking their portraits? Yeah, I have a secret. So when I know the person really well, I, I, can, I can sometimes get the real person out onto the, the photograph. So I, I'm, I, that's just by luck. But when it's someone else who I'm not as close to, what I really love is the fact that I'm able to put a fully set up camera and strobe system into somebody else's hands and have them do the same thing. In other words, by, you know, typically through some sort of dialogue, uh, talking to the person, being able to get them to be themselves and capture the moment without that other person who's taking the photo having to be very technical. They just have to, you know, pull that trigger. All the technical stuff already set up for them, ready to go. That's been my secret in, in capturing a lot of people uh, over the past couple of years. That's fantastic. Well, Jason, thank you so much for your time and all your insights, whether it be in identity or photography or camping. Um, really appreciated the conversation. I hope you can stay warm up there. Yeah. Um, I used to live in Ottawa, so I know how cold it is. It can get over there as well. But, uh, you know, it was a true pleasure chatting with you, and I hope to meet you in person sometime soon. What a great chat, Nabil. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.